Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, listening friends. It's time for a little journey to historical reality because our nation has been dabbling with fantasy when it comes to understanding our history of the separation of church and state, something that has become seriously out of favor these days. So I have invited my good friend, historian, and religious freedom advocate Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, to join me for this discussion. Greg, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Hey, thanks. So, you know, it's become fashionable in conservative circles to say that the only thing that the First Amendment was designed to do was to prevent the kind of national church like the Church of England in England or uh, to interfere with the existing religious establishments in the states. Hence the idea, well, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion meant keep your hands off the state establishments. There's a certain appeal to that, except that historically it's completely out of context and wrong. So why don't you help us out here with a little basic historical education about the First Amendment and, and what Congress was doing, or what the nation was doing, with saying no to establishments of religion. Well, first, let me put it in the modern context first, because I think to set it up in an American context, I mean, I think of the new book that's at uh, Costco. It's called Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well Lived. It's the speeches of Justice Antonin Scalia that have been released for the first time, and it's forwarded by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a, of course, justice on the Supreme Court. But there's a chapter in here on church and state, and it's based upon a 1989 speech that he gave on American tradition of separation church-state before an audience of American Catholics at the Pontifical North American College, the seminary of the American Catholic bishops in Rome. And what's interesting is, and this is early on in his career at the Supreme Court, he'd only been there three years from 1986, the speech is just brilliant. I mean, the speech, he, he adheres to the absolute separation of church and state. I mean, it, it is the most amazing speech. And it's exactly what I speak almost every week, whether I'm in churches or law schools giving lectures, it doesn't matter where. I mean, he's brilliant, even theologically, citing the life of Christ and Caesar and taxes and and my kingdom's not of this world statement by Christ before Pilate. I mean, it's just, it's brilliant. And even on a legal basis and, and a historical basis, it's just brilliant. But then, you know, you look at his rulings, uh, it's very clear that he is um, totally contradictory of his own speech. So he must have changed his mind somewhere along the line. And then six months before he dies, he gives a speech at the University of North Carolina, and he says, I even have the uh, printout from the news, uh, I think from the New York Times, saying that it is constitutional for states to establish their own tax-favored supported churches. And I'm going, whoa, 
this is ridiculous. And he, and he said that, you know, that the, that the founders only intended to prevent the establishment of a national church. That's all the establishment clause means and nothing more. And that government money can flow directly to religious institutions, churches, everything that that states can endorse religion, support religion, sanction religion. They can do whatever they want, and the federal government can't interfere. Right. Okay? Which, by the way, totally contradicts his speech in 1989. So, um, you know, this is all very amazing to me because it seems that they don't understand history. I'll never forget two footnotes in the Davy versus Locke decision in Washington State uh, back in 2006, and just Chief Justice William Rehnquist has uh, two footnotes in his majority ruling, which denied um, uh, Mr. Davey uh, the opportunity to have state support for going to a seminary. And he had two footnotes, and they were addressed to Justice Scalia. He says, you forget about the uh, Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom and the history behind that in the debates between Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. He says, you need to understand these to understand constitutional history correctly, otherwise you're totally out of line. I mean, that's essentially what was said. And I thought, boy, this is the biggest rebuke I've ever seen of a chief justice towards a fellow conservative on the Supreme Court. This was in 2006. And so it's obvious Sandra Day O'Connor, who was a moderate and a firm separationist, uh, very much had gotten to Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who at one point in 1985 in Wallace v. Jaffrey, the decision then said that separation of church and state is a myth. It doesn't exist that the founders never intended that. And so here, even Rehnquist got schooled. So it just, to me, shows, it demonstrates that the lack of the knowledge of history is what's really causing a lot of problems. And what it's causing is it's allowing a particular wild extremist right-wing group in the United States to just rewrite history at a whim, to say, well, actually the founders intended this, and then they really have nothing to support it except a few out-of-context statements. And, you know, David Barton is the most famous person for that. And so people begin to believe a lie. And so we've got to get it straight. So your question is very appropriate, and I'm sorry I had to give that particular <laughs> intro because we can we can go into Patrick Henry now and the whole debate. Well, um, but you know, I, I want to actually I want to start before we even get to the First Amendment and the meaning of the First Amendment. There is a context that people forget about when they argue about you know the First Amendment you know, having narrow prohibitions. Mm -hmm. And that is the whole concept of limited delegated powers given to the federal government by the Constitution itself. Absolutely. And so those who... Yeah, a Bill of Rights are negative law. Exactly. So, you know, the point that, you know, uh, somehow, first of all, the First Amendment is not a delegation of additional powers to the federal government that they didn't already have. And it's clear from the founding, you know, concept that government was never delegated power to promote religion, to fund religion, to have anything to do with religion. Government was essentially secular, Right. right? So, well, and that's what the word respecting means. When it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thereof, the word respecting means that the government must remain neutral, strictly neutral. And that means that they cannot sanction, they cannot sponsor or support religion. And the word and 
in that sentence. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment. The word an means any. It's the root word for any. And so it's pretty clear, even in the very wording, uh, the wording is quite specific. And people just don't understand that. They don't understand the actual meaning of the actual language of the religion clauses of the First Amendment. So how do you, you know, how do you address the claim that, well, after all, Congress did not extend the First Amendment to the states at the time it was enacted? Um, why should the states somehow be subject to the restrictions of the First Amendment? Why can't the states promote religion? That's interesting, because um, the Founding Fathers at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and then, you know, later when they drafted the Bill of Rights in 1789 in the First Congress in New York at Federal Hall, right across from the modern-day Wall Street, um, they determined, and Madison, first of all, was just new to the idea and was finally convinced that there even needed to be a Bill of Rights. I mean, that was a fevered correspondence between Jefferson and Madison. But Madison brought his arguments and his reasoning um, because of his dialogue with Jefferson and his debates with Patrick Henry in defense of Jefferson's proposed bill for a statute of religious freedom in Virginia against Patrick Henry's funding assumption bill. In fact, the debate at the Virginia Assembly between Patrick Henry's funding assumption bill and Jefferson's bill for a statute of religious freedom in Virginia, the debate between the two basically was brought over to the debate in the first federal Congress in 1789. And what's interesting is the language is the language of non-preferentialism. What was brought to the Senate was the doctrine of non-preferentialism. Now, this is deep stuff, but essentially the doctrine of non-preferentialism says that as long as, you know, um, that no one particular religion is favored, um, everybody can, uh, every denomination can pick the pastor or, or teacher of their choice and have their tax monies goes to the support to that pastor and teacher and thus denomination. And Madison came back memorial in remonstrance and said, no, 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 no. He said, no, this is nonsense. Um, he said, look, Christian, how comfortable are you that Henry, Patrick Henry, would have the government provide tax support to ministers in order to achieve purely temporal or political goals? Madison's appeal, however, was more than a one-directional wall, because he argued in memorial and remonstrance, number eight, that the lessons of history demonstrate that for the state to financially aid the church was to empower the church to advise, influence, and direct the state. That's what a so-called church-state united resulted in, an unworkable conspiracy in a democratic constitutional system. Madison understood this. Patrick Henry did not. And I think that's the essence of it. I mean, if you really understand what was going on here, Madison was saying that there is not a one-directional wall. This idea that somehow that the founders only intended to prevent the establishment of a national church, the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom arguments by Madison on behalf of Jefferson's statute said otherwise. He was saying, no, it is bidirectional. It goes both ways. We have to um, protect against um, ecclesiastical establishment. And here's what he said in Memorial and Remonstrance number eight. What influence, in fact, have ecclesiastical establishments had on civil society? Civil society. In some instances, they have been seen to erect a spiritual tyranny on the ruins of civil authority, that is, the church controlling the state. In many instances, they have been seen upholding the thrones of political tyranny, okay? So basically, the state 
um, controlling the church. In no instance have they been seen the guardians of the liberties of the people. He was very clear in that statement that, you know, this idea of a one-directional wall and that um, states go ahead and establish their own um, state churches. Leonard Levy points out in his book, The Establishment Clause, that he says, well, then why did states start immediately to start to disestablish their state churches, um, starting with Virginia um, in seventeen um, eighty-six, and then later after the first congressional session in seventeen eighty-nine, they rapidly started uh, disestablishing their state churches. Correct. He said because they were following the federal model. In in Allen, the psychology was we states can do it better, so we can separate our own church and state even better than the federal government. I mean, federal government can't tell us what to do. It's like two detectives. They say the federal FBI comes along the scene and the local sheriff says, this is my jurisdiction, who are you? We can do it better than you. And that's the way states were. They had this ego. So they were going to separate church and state better than the federal government. Well, and they all did. Yes. So, you know, the argument, I mean, the fact is all of the states from the beginning have their own versions of removing the religious establishments, of, of doing that by means of the Constitution. Yes. They all have it. We're running out of time. I just want to summarize for our listeners that, you know, we're seeing an historic shift in our country away from our tradition of uh, government neutrality towards religion, of government staying out of the business of religion. And now that government is getting into everybody's business, they want to get into the business of the church. And from a spiritual standpoint, I think my greatest concern is that the church loses its prophetic voice to speak truth to power and to, be a, to hold up a higher moral standard, and then it becomes really the priestly element that simply is part of the status quo that conforms to society and loses its, its spiritual direction. And in history, in the Supreme Court right now, you see very clearly that Patrick Henry is winning the day and Jefferson and Madison are losing in the Supreme Court's arguments that are coming out of the court today. That is true. Our guest today, Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. Greg, thanks as always for being with us on Freedom's Ring. Thanks.